All right, welcome to another episode of the Artists of Motion podcast. Today I'm talking with my buddy Martin Seck out of North Carolina, USA. He's been in the martial arts since 1975 across a variety of lineages and holds black belts in a couple of them. He started up Panda Bear Forge around four years ago, primarily focusing on historical weapons recreation with a specialty in knife work. He's on the line with us today and we're stoked to have him. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you? I've had a wonderful day. So I'm stoked out here. I know it's a little different weather situation out there on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. So, you know, a little bit of a time difference, a little bit of weather difference, but we're all good, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I do miss the uh, milder climate from when I lived in Florida, but, uh, you know, don't live there anymore. <laughs> well, that's all good. I'm sure North Carolina is happy to have you. Happy to be here. All right. So I gave everybody kind of like the nutshell dump there that uh, you've been in the arts since 75. How about uh, extrapolating that? Whatever part of the, your history you'd like to share, let's hear about it. Sure. So, uh, well, I, I was a little kid, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but I was a little kid in 1975, maybe the summer 74-ish. And um, I remember you know, we didn't get to stay up as late back then as maybe kids do now. And TV used to go off at a certain time, which some of the older folks will remember. But anyway, my parents ended up letting me stay up late. And I was what, and by late I mean eight or nine. And I ended up watching um, Return of the Dragon with Bruce Lee. And I remember just being—I'd never seen it before, and I, I'd just been enamored, infatuated. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I was a smaller person, and it kind of spoke to me. And I remember the fight with Chuck Norris at the end, and it just blew my mind. All these magical things that were happening on the screen. And I remember going to school the next day and telling all my friends, I'm like, hey, Bruce Lee killed Chuck Norris. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I saw it on TV. He's, he's dead. He killed him. And they're, you know, we're, you know, we're kids here. We don't, we don't, you know, the reality versus, uh, you know, actuality was a completely different thing. So, uh, you know, we all thought that was true. And uh, I remember a couple of months later going to this, college basketball game and at the halftime show there was a karate demonstration where some guys were running some self-defense techniques and breaking boards and bricks and such and it just cemented it even more for me and I remember asking my dad if it was something that I could do and you know he encouraged it quite a lot in fact and uh, did some research and we found or he found a gentleman by the name of Sam Justice Shotokan, American Shotokan guy. And he, uh, in fact, his school is still open today. So that says something about you know, the quality of instruction and, and, and such. And I remember um, in my first lesson, I, I mean, I can vividly remember my first lesson. I wasn't allowed on the mat. I was in the, the men's changing room, small mirror in front of me. And we just called him Sensei back then. And he came in and showed me um, a front snap kick, an upper block, a reverse punch. And I remember just having this instruction and all these things coming to fruition that I had wanted up to this point. And it was just an amazing experience for me. Uh, and uh, the cool thing about him is we reconnected probably about 15 years ago online. Um, and I've been up to see him since. And actually, my son got to take some instruction with him, uh, as we called him his karate grandfather. So uh, it was pretty cool. 
And um, I mean, that's pretty much where I got started. Okay, so got your start back then. Where did that progress to from then until present day? I know you've been in and around a whole lot of stuff. So uh, whatever part of that you're having fun or would like to share, you know, I'm sure it uh, provides good context for our conversation. Sure, absolutely. So uh, my father, we uh, he was a CPA for a worldwide firm. Um, and he traveled, I mean, we had to travel quite a bit for his career. Almost like the military, every four or five years we would be moving. So I didn't unfortunately get to stay in Virginia uh, with Sensei Justice as long as I would have liked to. Uh, but it did, you know, spawn this lifelong uh, passion for me to continue to train in the arts. So we ended up moving um, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, and my, my dad ended up finding uh, another school for me. Again, I was, I didn't want to stop training at that point. And I ended up training with this guy named T.J. Nicholas, very well-known. Muduquan uh, actually was the name of it. Not Muduquan. It was a little, little different uh, variety there. More very Shotokan-esque, very um, hard-style, linear. And we ended up uh, training there until probably about 16. I was about 16 or so. And I ended up through a friend of mine finding uh, Kempo around that time. And again, Kempo was something that just, it, it spoke to me is the first time I saw it, just the way everything was laid out, the way, um, you know, motion was executed, the, the logic behind all of it, and just kind of how it works. Prior to that, you know, if someone came up to you, they knew you trained in the martial arts, they may say something like, well, show me something. You know, oh, you're trained karate? Well, show me something. And, you know, it's always one of those things that's an awkward notion. Like, well, you know, what am I going to show you? Am I going to kick at you? Am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, I remember asking my friend, or, you know, he was showing me part of the, the temple that he was learning. And it just blew my mind. I mean, it just, it, the way that it flowed, the way that everything went together, just, I loved it. I loved it. And I ended up meeting his instructor at the time, um, which was a guy named Reggie Toussaint, who trained in um, Temple under a guy named Mike Allen uh, out, of, out of the South Florida area. And, um, I mean, that's really kind of where that started. We ended up, Reggie was a well-known fighter in the 70s and 80s. He was in um, Three Gladiators. He was in one of the clips in the beginning. Mr. Parker even calls him by name uh, when he's dropping an axe kick on someone. And like a lot of Kempo guys, uh, Reggie started in Korean arts. And a lot of you know, a lot of guys will say, they, they don't want to think about the past. They want to say, okay, well, I've been in Kempo this long or I started in Kempo. A lot of Kempo guys are Taekwondo guys from the early on stages. Um, a lot of them are. And if you talk to them about it, especially the ones that can show you how well they kick, these guys all, all were Taekwondo guys first. And then ended up finding it. Now, for me, Taekwondo was great. You know, however, I did find it uh, light on the hand techniques with the exception of the traditional stuff, which, you know, worked great 2,000 years ago. 
but Kempo had that modern solution. Once you knew how to kick and you could apply Kempo hand techniques, concepts and principles with it, um, it just became something you know, that I, I think kind of elevated it even higher. And I'm not going to call any of the guys out, but there's well-known Kempoists, and you may have even spoken to a few of them, um, that all started in the Korean arts first. They're kooky one black belts. Some of them third, fourth degree black belts in kooky one before, or in the Taekwondo systems before they found Kempo. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of, not that it's a starting out art, but it just happened to be for me personally, I wasn't old enough yet to make a decision where I was going to train. My parents picked that for me. Uh, when I was 16 and I was able to drive, have my own car, and I found Kempo in South Florida, that's kind of what allowed me to then kind of seek that out. Well, there was that big proliferation where the Korean arts just exploded in the 80s, too. So, I mean, that had, it got had something to do with it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you had in the early 80s, well, Red Bruce Lee, of course, and, you know, fantastic kicker. Not that he was a Taekwondo guy, but, you know, Jun Lee was a good friend of his. Uh, they learned, you know, they exchanged information with each other. Um, then we had Karate Kid, which, you know, ex martial arts exploded from that. We had Jean-Claude, you know, love him or hate him, blood sport. We have a lot of people to the arts. A lot of people started training from that. I mean, it's kind of gone on from there. You know, they had Seagal in the early 90s and such just to continue to bring interest to the systems and, of course, the perfect weapon. Yeah, I mean, that was like the quintessential one that put Kempo on the map, just the same way Bruce Lee did for a lot of the other stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember seeing it and, you know, it's kind of funny, too. Where, I mean, in the arts, you, you run into people, and, and I know you agree with this, but we talk about things being about... Um, about the practitioner more than the system. And I know there's a lot of different systems that get bad bad reps or raps. Uh, but I've met some guys in some very obscure systems of the martial arts where you know people would knock the style, but that actual practitioner was fantastic. Yep. And then he may you know be very very highly skilled or more highly skilled than you know your instructor in in a style that you feel is superior. So it's, you know, it's really about the practitioner and, and it kind of, it speaks to what calls to you, you know, I mean, what, again, what brought me into Kempo and what kind of fascinated me with it was, you know, just the, the way things logically took place and that I kind of knew where my opponent was going to be before he did, you know, by, by placing him there. Um, and just to have something to fall back on, obviously learning the techniques initially and then breaking that down to position recognition, available targets, available weapons, you know, that type of stuff. Yep. So I'm going to out you a little bit here because uh, I happen to have a book called The Kempo Continuum, which has your biography in it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so I, I know you've traded significantly more than that. You're, you're, you're humble enough. You don't want to let all that stuff out there, and I get it. But I'm going to out you anyway. So you got Shotokan, Mudokan, Hakido, Choi Lei Fu, Kung Fu. Chinese Kempo and American Kempo. I'm sure there's some other stuff in there too that wasn't in, in that particular biography. Um, but you've had a wide variety of experience. And correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. even though you've played in a lot of arenas, I would I, I think I'm comfortable saying 
I think your primary and dominant style that really holds you throughout all of that since you found it has been American Kempo specifically. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then that becomes also about the teacher. You know, I've, I've had some good teachers and I've had some teachers that I ended up finding out later. Didn't know was, you know, they told us they were teaching us Kempo, but it wasn't really about the book Kempo. And I was too young to, to really know Mr. Parker. Uh, Sean Kelly had an event or there was an event in South Florida. I, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to recall the exact date and time. Uh, I was not a black belt yet. And I do recall, and this may be, you know, I'm going way back, um, seeing Mr. Parker in an event that I was at, surrounded by black belts and brown belts and, you know, people that were associated in the IKKA at the time. Um, and I just remember seeing him and being super intimidated. You know, just, uh, I, I felt like, even though I know he loves kids and, you know, I just was, I was intimidated. It was me. And I never even got closer than 50 feet to him. Never said a word, never exchanged eyes, nothing. Uh, but, you know, the man just, through, through people that were his senior students, you know, I've learned a lot about him and stories about him that just uh, give me all that respect. Um, and, and I wish that I would have been a little bit older or a little bit more active in that scene at the time to, you know, have, have had an opportunity to meet him. And I just never did. I think that's fair. Yeah. Just at that point in time, you know, the age and experience and all that fun stuff. Yeah, he was a living legend by the time you saw him at a very early age, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and the people around him were just I don't even know if I could have gotten near him if I wanted to. You know, I mean it was and I and I and I get it. You know, I totally get it. It's just, you know, who he was and such. But especially by that point. Yeah, you mentioned the, Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cuz we're talking I mean, it had to be, it was after 1984, because I fought in the 1984 U.S. Open, and I went there with Reggie. And he passed away in 1990, so you got a six-year scan there. It must have been somewhere in there. Exactly, and it had to be either Manny Reyes that brought him to Florida or Sean Kelly, one of the two. And I, I know he would come down, uh, they would bring him over. Um, so it had to be between 84 and 90 that he was around, I, and again... My memory from that time isn't the greatest, but uh, I did meet Bill Wallace in 1984 at the U.S. Open. Um, he was selling a stretch machine at the time, but he was a promoter for it, something called the Power Stretch by Trico. And uh, I think he had ads for that in Black Belt Magazine. I ended up seeing him again many, many years later at a camp that Mr. Kelly put on, in fact. Um, and that was really cool to be reunited with him. He's a super fun, super personable guy. He's a, a closet Doctor Who fan. Or maybe not a closet Doctor Who fan. He probably talks about it, but that's something I talked about with him, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, then I ended up finding, you mentioned Troy Foot, And I ended up uh, having an opportunity to train um, Lee Kun Hung had a school, and he was a very, very famous toilet foot uh, instructor. Um, he had passed away right before I had an opportunity to 
go to the school, but his younger brother was teaching there, Lee Su Hung, and one of the senior instructors at the school is a guy named Joe Keat, who's still active in teaching today in that area. Um, and this is when I kind of got, I had an opportunity to dabble a little bit in video editing, and I edited and produced about six or seven to, uh, videos for their school that you know, were sold worldwide. And I was told later on, actually helped uh, Lee Su Hong bring some of his family from uh, China to America, you know, from some of the proceeds. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, talk about making an impact, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it was good times for sure. Um, I followed Reggie around quite a bit. Also, uh, he, you know, I mean, you, you know how it is in martial arts. It's, I've had two commercial schools. You know, you're an instructor. You know, you know how challenging it is um, to keep things going because people don't really know the difference between a qualified practitioner and instructor and some guy that you know puts on a belt and happens to have great business acumen and might have a successful school. So Reggie was a great fighter, but as far as business went, um, he opened and closed quite a bit. So I, I would follow him around. He started in like Oakland Park and I mean, he had to move the school probably four or five times during the time that I trained with him. Um, so that was a little tough. And when he was closed, I'd seek things out. I, you know, I, I had an opportunity to just to be able to do that. I mean, with my dad moving and you know, I didn't really get fixated on one style per se until I found Kempa, which, you know, then I ended up loving that. But, uh, you know, I, I was not afraid to dabble. I wasn't afraid to start over somewhere. You know, take your take your rank off and you know just learn something. So I, that's where I got a lot of great opportunities uh, to do that type of thing. So since the well, actually, you know, we're talking nineteen eighties. That's thirty five years ago now, right? It's one of those moments you kind of sit back and whoa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Jeez. Uh, so okay. Okay, moving forward from then until now, who are you training with these days? What, what's really catching your mind and catching your interest on in today's world? So uh, I'll skip back just a little bit, and I know this a little bit's going to be a, still now a, a while ago, but uh, around end of 2006, I, knew, I ended up going through divorce. I moved back to South Florida, and Sean Kelly had a Kempo camp, and his camps are phenomenal. They were fantastic he'd bring people together that you know you would normally think would be in the same room with each other but he would make it happen and it was just incredible so uh he invited me you know I, and i've known mr kelly since the 80s you know early mid 80s um i'd come up to his school and, and spar you know at one point he ranked me like one of his top five sparring partners um you know, he posted that online a while back. So, you know, and the accolades, that's, you know, I'm, I'm honored that he would think of me in that fashion. But anyway, we, we've known each other for a long time. And when he invited me up to his, to his event, uh, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of people. So I met Jeff Speakman there. I met Mike Pick. I met, I mean, I, you know, I'd have to really look at a list because it's just Lee Redlake. Um, man, I mean, it, goes, it just goes on and on. 
And uh, some of the guys at this point had known me from the Kempo talk days and the Kempo net days because I was one of the early guys on that. And so it's kind of like a welcoming home almost uh, to Kempo in South Florida since I had been gone for a little while. And this a guy named Mark Walpert, who I was friends with online, and we had chatted quite a bit, uh, he happened to be there, and he was there with his instructor. And his instructor's name is Ken Herman. And Mr. Herman is the author of, gosh, probably going on 10 Kempo books at this point. He's authored some apps. He is the person that wrote the information side of all of the Kempo cards, which people might be familiar with. Um, Edmund Parker Jr. did the uh, artistic, the drawing portion. Um, and Ken Herman was his partner, or maybe it still is his partner, I don't know. Uh, and anyway, they, they kind of collaborated on that project. So I, I, I didn't know him. I had heard of him when I had lived back down there. And I remember he had a school and they were you know great fighters. And I heard great things about him that he was just, you know, the, his knowledge of the art was just incredible. Uh, and anyway, I got an opportunity to meet him then. So we started talking, and his, uh, where his studio was was a little bit closer to where I lived at the time when I had moved back down there. So I was invited over probably late 06 or middle 06, I think. And uh, I never stopped training with anybody since then. So I've been with him since that time. And, you know, we would sometimes, there would be, the classes he would teach would always be after the regular school hours. And it was all black belts. So, and yeah, it was kind of invitation only. It wasn't, uh, you know, his, his uh, inner circle really protected and sheltered people from coming to train with him. Like, if you didn't know somebody who was already there, number one, you may never have heard of him. Number two, you probably weren't going to get invited to train there unless, like I said, unless you knew somebody. So this closed-door thing was really cool to me also. But sometimes it'd be, you know, two or three of us or some, you know, maybe four, and we would train for hours, three, three hours, you know, any time we would meet. And he would explain the art in ways that just, it blew my mind. You know, I almost felt like before that, um, that the Kempo I had learned was just, you know, different. It just wasn't the true Kempo. I felt like I was in the shadow almost. And then when I started training with Mr. Herman, I felt like I was standing in the sun at this point. Like, wow, there's all these things I didn't see. Now that could be just because I was older and I was more experienced in the arts and I was a black belt in a, a few different systems at this point and, you know, high ranking in, in some systems as well. Uh, including Kempo at that point, um, and professor, associate professor level. But anyway, uh, I was, I even said to Mr. Herman a couple of times, I will take my belt off, you know, if you want me to. And he said, no, 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 you know, you earned it. You, well, I can, I can tell that you can't fully experience. And he can see, you know, how I moved, even though it wasn't necessarily up to the par of the standards that those guys were doing at the time. Um, you know, that, I had the, I had experience. I had, you know, motion that he appreciated enough to take me on as a student. 
So we still meet Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, he has an online class. Again, it's invitation only. <laughs> it's a very small amount of people that show up to it uh, by, by design. And even though it's online and maybe some people might say, well, that's not as good as in person. I had many, many years with him in person. Uh, and you know, now I get the opportunity to continue to grow in Kempo uh, online. And, you know, we'll take a technique. We might spend two hours talking about one technique and just relationships. And what do we see? And then we'll talk about the execution. And uh, theories and things behind, you know, we'll let, you know, some of the what ifs and things, or how is it done in the form versus how is it done in a real deal phase and such. So I, I'm, I know it's a little bit of a longer answer, but uh, Ken Herman is who I'm training with since 06, late 06, uh, and I'm still with him today. Love it. And then in addition to working, still continuing with Kempo, you're also continuing with Taekwondo, if I remember correctly. Is that accurate as well? So I, I do try to keep up with it. Uh, I, I don't have a formal instructor per se. Um, I, I did train with a guy. I trained with Casey Chung when I was in South Florida for a while. Um, I actually I owned a commercial school with him for a short time. And uh, I ended up moving to Ohio. You know, as I said, I've moved kind of all over the place. And I ended up training with a guy up there named Wes Dees. And I still keep in touch with him. Wes um, Dees, Master Wes Dees was uh, part of the one of the first committees of Americans that were allowed to actually use the Kuki One. Um, he was part of the first instructor certification program that was allowed at the Kuki One at the time. So he's, he's a personal friend of mine as well, and we, we still keep in touch to this day. So he kind of keeps me honest. He keeps me, you know, he keeps me kicking, so to speak, in that regard. And you know, if I need any tuning up in that regard, you know, he's the guy that does it for you know my, my kicking stuff so i i just have to highlight this because it made me chuckle you're talking about the master taekwondo guy that's helping keep you kicking <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it's not in there it made me chuckle that was good thank you <laughs> no problem <laughs> okay so one of my favorite things about this show is getting to talk to people who've got so much experience especially you know across multiple disciplines in the martial arts uh, what do you what do you feel like is the most beneficial part to training in multiple different areas for extended periods of time, and what do you think is the most difficult part about it? So I think the beneficial part, and and this even can go back to a lesson in tempo, is you know the broader your toolbox, if the tool is valuable, you should keep the tool, uh, and the more tools you can learn, the better to do that with. So why would I say, well, hey, I don't want to learn this particular technique in short or foot because, you know, uh, someone else may may find it not valuable, but maybe for my body style, my the way I like to execute technique, maybe I use it and apply it. Um, doing Kempo with Mr. Herman, you know, I was able to then go back and look at some of the other systems I've trained in. And I could apply uh, a lot of the stuff that he taught me directly to those systems. And some of the techniques are identical. Um, one of the things I haven't mentioned up to this point is um, I am a bar member, which is a closed-door private student under a guy named Randy Williams. 
who was the founder of CRCA Wing Chun Kung Fu. Uh, he was also Steven Seagal's bodyguard in the 90s. Um, the guy's been on probably 100 covers of Black Belt and Inside Kung Fu. He's got, I, I couldn't even tell how many books he's written. It's, it's a lot. And he had a video series from Panther back in the day. Uh, I guarantee you, you've seen him. And I guarantee you, if you saw his picture, you'd go, oh, I, I know exactly who that is. And uh, when I was in, you know, I became a private student of his, and he calls them bar members because he has this property up in Pennsylvania. It's a 150-acre horse farm. And there's an old barn there, uh, like a peg and post style barn. And when you walk into it, it looks like you're going back into ancient Shaolin Temple. There's wooden dummies around. There's different martial art training apparatus. There's different kanji on the wall that are maxims from Wing Chun. Uh, it's pretty, pretty cool. And when he started showing me some of the Wing Chun and the traditional motion behind that, I could make direct relationships to American Kempo techniques almost exactly the same with very, very minor differences. And one of the things that made me think about this, and I wrote an article years ago uh, in regards to this, was that I feel, and this was kind of backed up by Edmund, um, that Bruce Lee and Ed Parker, in the inception of their respective styles, shared information. As you and I are sharing information right now, and as we would if we were in person, and touching hands, so to speak. And I feel that Jeet Kundo and you know has American Kempo concepts and principles. And I feel like American Kempo has some Jeet Kundo and Wing Chun stuff. Uh, one that Mr. Parker happened to like, and he said, I'm gonna borrow that. I'm gonna maybe he changed it somewhat, but you know, the human body is the human body. We can only move in so many different ways. We've only got so many different limbs. There's only so many forms of execution that we can do. Uh, and I really feel like they they exchanged information. And Edmund told me once when I had visited their family home in, in uh, California um, that Bruce Lee would call the house and, and Edmund would answer the phone. And to him, he said it was just like a, you know, a, no, a normal person calling the phone. Like, oh, Dad, hey, Bruce Lee's on the phone for you. Whereas the rest of us are freaking out, like, oh, my God, are you serious? You know, for him, as the, as the son of a famous grandmaster, that's just how he grew up. You know, which he's got some great stories, too. Ed, Edmund's a pretty cool guy. I can agree with but, that. But, uh, yeah, I really feel like they should. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like, you know, they, they shared information. So why not take things that work for you and bring them into your toolbox something that you could pull out um and it's kind of cool because i'll do i i did a i was a part of a seminar at alex Perez's school alex was my main training partner under mr herman for while i was down in south florida and i did a uh a trapping drill that i applied campo concepts and principles to but i learned it from randy williams and everybody loved it you know the the, the seminar went over really well I had people talk to me afterwards about it, still do. Um, Frank Trejo is known for teaching sticky hands. And guess what? Sticky hands, Chi Sao comes from Wing Chun. That's where it originated. Yes, Jeet Kune Do has it, but it was a Wing Chun thing first. 
Um, and then, yeah, you can apply to Campo. So why not? You know, if I can, and that's all where it comes down to uh, formulation and I'm looking at available weapons, available targets. And if I'm in a particular position in Chisau and I can execute a Kempo technique, why not? So it's, uh, that's the benefit. What's, what's, the, what, what's the detriment? Well, it's hard to remember all that stuff. <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, I, I learned a lot of forms in my life. And man, uh, I, I wish I had, uh, you know, a key to the matrix where I could just unlock that portion of my brain and, you know, automatically remember them all. I'm just, I'm just not that guy. You know, it's, it's always been a struggle for me to keep up with, you know, the motion. And uh, unless I do it frequently, like when I had a school, um, some of the information slips away. Now, the concepts and principles don't. And your body always remembers. So there's been times where, you know, if you have to use your art, uh, it's going to be there for you if you've invested proper time and training in it. So I've never had an issue in that regard. Uh, but yeah, I'm trying to remember all that stuff. And, you know, remember, uh, I was talking to Seafood Joe Keat a while, you know, a couple of years back um, on my honeymoon. I went down to South Florida again. You know, he's a, an old friend, a good friend of mine. And I went over to his school, his new school. And he taught me uh, a trailer foot three-section staff form, which I had always wanted to learn it. And we were just talking about when I had been a student there. And like I said, Joe was kind of the main, he was a student instructor, but he was, he was black belt level at the time. Uh, even back then, phenomenal Kung Fu practitioner. And uh, we were talking about, well, what form do you remember? Empty hand form. I'm like, I don't remember any of it, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, it slipped away because it had been replaced by something else. And I joke around and I say something, you know, sometimes like, well, you know, based on when I was born, my brain, a.k.a. my hard drive, only has a certain amount of space. So I start trying to shove new information in there. You know, I don't remember, like, the first 10 years of my life anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little challenging. But that's the detriment. Now, is it really a detriment? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Um you know, and then I, I always try, sometimes, sometimes things just call to me, and I, I have a desire to explore it. And, you know, one of the things I've started looking at a couple of years ago now uh, is the is Irish stick fighting, which is kind of a obscure art. And um, my, my heritage is Irish, Scottish, and a little bit of Scandinavian, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of infatuated with it. And I ended up finding this gentleman named Glenn Doyle online who taught a system that's, that's a two-handed version of fighting with basically like a short stick. And, uh, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen some of the other kind of gentleman stick fighting stuff, and it looks very fencing-like which is where a lot of the techniques came from, actually. Uh, and I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, not really my thing. Um, and then I saw Mr. Doyle's execution of it and this, this two-handed system that he, his father passed on to him. Uh, it just blew my mind. I, I said, man, I got to do that. 
So I've uh, I took an online course he had, a correspondence course where he was very, very great about giving you feedback and communicating with you. Probably very similar to what you guys do in IKCA, you know, where someone will videotape themselves and uh, you'll give them feedback and you know, they can grow and develop in that way. And, you know, I, I especially believe that that's, I mean, we're dealing with it in this pandemic and uh, you can learn that way. You can. Um, and I believe the more experience you have in the martial arts, the easier it becomes. Because if you say, hey, do a technique like this, or if you've practiced it and you've done it in person before, then you asking me to execute it in a particular fashion, sure. Sure, I don't necessarily have to have somebody there to say, hey, put your elbow in or whatever. If I found it and I send it to you and you see that, you can correct that. Um, and then people that can learn that way actually you know, very beneficial. So I, I, he's, um, he's not anywhere near where I would be able to go train with him in person, especially at this time. Um, but it's something that I ended up doing. I enjoy it. I still talk to him every so often. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's, I, I recommend checking it out. Um, again, kind of like Mr. Herman, he is, he's difficult to get in touch with. And, uh, you know, I almost feel like it's a, an invite. I'm, I'm not, when I, and I say that, I mean in regards to Irish stick fighting. I know he does screenwriting and some film producing and stuff like that. So I'm sure in that regard, he's probably very easy to get in touch with. But he, um, in regards to training with the Irish stick fighting, it's all, I almost felt like, wow, this is invitation only. It's a little tough to, to you know, get to find, find it, number one, and number two, you know, have everything line up where it becomes something that you're able to do. Uh, I don't think he's offering that course anymore. It was a about a 15 session event or something like that. I have to go back and look at them all. Uh, but he was fantastic. I asked him for some basic drills and intermediate drills, and he sent me all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, separately, which I thought was awesome. I really appreciated it. Um, super nice guy. But, uh, you know, again, I, I, I'm kind of an art that I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. I mean, if someone came to me, hey, you know, FMA is better. FMA does this and FMA does that. I'd say that's fantastic. But I trained this not to necessarily, uh, you know, I, I mean, am I going to get in a street fight with some guy who's a grandmaster and some system? But if, if I don't have... Um, you know, a particular background, I'm not going to be successful. And the answer is no. That, that's never going to happen. I mean, the odds of that happening are you, know, you win the lottery five times before you fight some grandmaster in some style, especially anyone that's trained, because we're, we're really not the kind of guys that goes out and pick fights. You know, I'd rather settle it over a pint and just be friends than, you know, men's fighting to the death. <laughs> Grandmasters are out there fighting to the death. Uh, you know, and so I do it because I love it. I do it because it's cultural. I do it because it speaks to me. You know, not taking anything away from any other style. This is just, it's my path and my journey. We're here for a limited time. And I, you know, I want to do what I want to do. And, and I do that. I love it. It's, uh, I really like the point you made there. It's really about finding what speaks to you. 
Yeah. And yeah. at different points in your training, you're very likely going to have, you know, what you originally were doing because it spoke to you is probably going to evolve and you're going to be interested in other things too. And there's a whole lot of people that get, that get stuck in that, uh, that one limited mindset of this is what I'm doing. I've been doing this for this long. I can't go do something else. And it's not reality. I mean, reality is finding what you love to do and finding what motivates you to your point. You know, we're only here for a limited time. Absolutely. And, and you have to be happy in your journey. And the thing is with whatever journey you pick, you know, it doesn't end. You're always learning. You're always evolving. Um, you know, I, I've been a Kempo practitioner for a long time now. And I've been a Kempo practitioner under, you know, someone who I feel is one of the best in the world uh, for a long time now as well. And I feel that, you know, the I, I'm so happy with what I can't even tell you. You know, my... Uh, but but as you pointed out, I mean things evolve to a certain point, and you the things that shaped me in the past led me to where I am right now. So I, I certainly wouldn't change any of it. I mean, some people had the benefit of their first style was American Kempo, and they found that in, immediately. And um, some of them were lucky enough to train with Mr. Parker, uh, you know, from the beginning, and that's phenomenal. I mean, not everyone can say that. Uh, but those guys still have open minds in some way. I mean, some of these guys, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have trained with a lot of first-generation black belts and grandmasters. Um, I'm very lucky, and, and, you know, some of them know who I am. If you ask them, they would know me. Uh, you know, I'm just very blessed in that way. And, you know, I'm just going to continue to keep doing my thing. Yeah, and it's it's just uh, it's a great a great journey. Um, a, a quick story I'll share: We had a gentleman show up who was a I believe he was a Kyoshi, so seventh degree black belt in a traditional Japanese style, which I, I I'm not going to say because I don't remember which one it was. But he had the fancy belt and all that, and he was curious as to what we were doing, and he was a high level practitioner in the system that he trained in. And we showed him some Kempo stuff. And I'll tell you, you know, when I trained in South Florida, we were not afraid to hit each other. And especially when you become comfortable with your instructor and your partners. I mean, you can you can go a little bit and, you know, you, you kind of know where your limitations are. You know, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I'm trying to execute the technique correctly. And, and I'm going to let you do the same thing to me. Uh, anyway, this guy, I don't think he was quite prepared for that. You know, I think he was a little bit used to maybe like static uh, one-step sparring where it's either right contact or no contact. And in some systems, they'll say, hey, if you hit me, that means you have no control. Well, you know, it depends where I'm hitting, too. I'm not, I'm not going to hit you in the face, uh, or very hard at least, or not with a, a hard uh, weapon to a soft target. I'm not going to do that to somebody. But, you know, I might, I might move you with a palm or something. But uh, anyway, this guy trained with us for one session, and he never came back. So it's it's one of those things that I was thinking, you know, did he close his mind off? Could he have learned something if he had continued to show up and maybe improve his existing system? Um, when I had a, a Kempo school in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, I had a, a – he was a, a Kempo variant black belt. Uh, come to train with me and he was very set in his ways he was very set and he was he was a phenomenally skilled athlete 
Um, so he picked up things relatively quickly. Uh, and many, many years, he ended up stopped going because he thought I should promote him faster than he was being promoted. Well, I, I don't promote anybody faster than their time dictates to be promoted in, in the system that I teach. And so he was progressing fine, as anyone would with experience. Um, I told him he could wear black belt if he wanted to, even though it's from a different style. I respect that he had earned that before. And he said no, but then on the other side, he was disappointed he wasn't being promoted faster. So he ended up, uh, after six months or so, he ended up just going back to his root system, and I, I had ended up moving away. And uh, he reached out to me many years later and said, hey, I really wish I would have stayed with you because I realize now there's a lot of things I had to learn, a lot of things I could have learned if I would have opened my mind and continued to train there. And I think that's a lesson that all of us, I don't care what rank you are, uh, could learn from. You know, Dan Inosanto is one of those guys who, who trains all kinds of different stuff. And he's an original Kempo guy. He's an FMA guy. And he, he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Um, and, of course, original Jeet Kune Do and all that. But that guy, I mean, you know, and I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, once uh, up in Ohio. Where he came up with Dr. G. And I've, I've met and trained with Dr. G several times since then. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, what a, what a great example. I mean, he's one of those guys. It's just, uh, you know, he sets the bar. And I, I'll never forget, my ex-wife at the time was pregnant with my second child. And here I am, you know, Dan and Santo called me up to be his partner, which blew my mind already because Bruce Lee's the reason I started training. This guy was... In my mind, Bruce Lee's best friend slash trading partner. Uh, and he, we put our hands up in a guard, like, you know, getting ready to do some trapping and stuff like that. And I just kind of froze, like, oh, my God, this, this is Dan Inosanto. And I was starstruck. And I don't even remember what he said. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, trapped and taken apart <laughs> by Time this awesome, awesome yeah, yeah, I remember like coming out of it like, whoa, what was all that? And you know, I'm pretty sure I was supposed to pox out somewhere. And I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> what happened. <laughs> yeah, I love working with those guys. When you yeah. have that opportunity to deal with somebody who, I mean, they're truly, I don't want to be sounding cliche, but they're truly a master in what they do. And it's, you know, every time I've gotten to touch hands with somebody who I consider in that category, it's the same feeling. It's the, okay, I was here, now I'm over here. And I'm in more pain than I can possibly think that I should be in. And then they let you go and it's gone. And you're like, okay, what just happened? Right. I was just like ready to yeah. tear my hair out in pain and now it's gone, but I'm still on the floor. I probably should get back up now before I figure yep. out what the heck happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've had some moments like that where I feel like after I got up, and, and one of the techniques I remember is backbreaker. Um and I felt like my, I left part of my soul on the mat. Like it never came back up with me. You know what I mean? Love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, execution that Mr. Herman shows with um, this double back knuckle to, you know, rotating to your shoulders. Um, so basically when you step back, the guy can't flap out because you've just blasted his shoulders with these double back knuckles to each side. So even if you know how to slap out, you can't really do it because your arms are deadened, so to speak, at that point. And I, 
I mean, and when I started training in the martial arts, I didn't matter what style you did. You always, everybody taught break falls in the beginning. It didn't matter what style it was. It was Shotokan, it was Wudokwan, it was Chola Foot. Everybody did break falls, every single style. And anyway, so, you know, I'll, I'll skip my thoughts on that for a second, but I know how to break fall. And I was pretty good at it. And uh, I couldn't do it <laughs> because it just wasn't there to yeah, do it. And I remember my hitting the mat, and I'm just like, I had to sit there for a minute. And, uh, you know, they helped me back up. And when I stood up, I'm like, I really felt like 25% of me is still on the mat. And it still is <laughs> to this it's day. still in that one place on the mat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know where it is, too. I could go there right now, and I can find it. <laughs> Love but, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, now you got to tie us back. What are your thoughts on the breakfall piece? Well, you know, I, I feel like too many people today, um, because of business reasons, don't teach. They teach a pared-down version of every art. You know, it's not, and I'm sure people will say, you know, oh, I guarantee you my instructor does this and that. And you know what, maybe I probably sound like a, a quote-unquote old crotchety guy because I came up in the arts in the 70s. But you know what? To a guy that came up in the arts in the 50s and 60s, I, I'm probably a pussy to them. You know, they're like, oh, this guy, you know, he didn't even know what it's like. He, he should have been around in the 50s. Well, I wasn't. I was around in the 70s. So I know what it was like then. And I know what it was like in the 80s and the 90s, and I know what it's like now. And I see different things. <laughs> and, and, you know, unfortunately, you live in that commercial world where, and I get it. My school in 1996 was about 6000 bucks a month just to keep the, the doors open. So I get it. And I understand where, you know, you got to keep your customers coming in. You've got your customers who help you pay the bills. I mean, you got your students who maybe they do a little bit, you know, you're passing some of the extra stuff on to them because of the, of the extra effort they put into. You know, your customer might be coming in once or twice a week. They want to get a sweat. They want to pat off with their towel and then they want to go home. Well, the student's going to stay longer than that. They're going to train every class you give them an opportunity to. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to discover things in the art that you don't show them directly, but you indirectly show them. Uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of my opinion on that. And I, I know the guys that came up in my era are going to agree with me. And the guys before me are going to say, I'm soft. And the guys after me are going to say, I'm unrealistic. But it's when I came up. I can't help it. It's, you know, I, I guess I should be uh, on my front porch telling people to get off my lawn or something. Well, I mean, you got the beard and the hair for it now. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, my good old Irish wife. Yeah, I've been paying attention to your uh, your Facebook page for a little while, and then you know, I started doing some research and. Uh, before I pinged you to do season two, I was like, wait, wait, I thought I was looking at a picture of myself from a couple of years ago. You know, I cut all my hair off yeah, and you grew yeah. yours out. Well, yeah, I mean, I had it long in the 80s, like a lot of us did. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that just transitions in life. Things, things were changing in my work life. Things were changing in the world, you know, with the pandemic and stuff. And I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to be me, man. I'm just going to do me. And, you know, part of the bladesmith, part of the blacksmith, part of the cultural thing. Um, you know, my hair hasn't fallen out yet. If it starts to thin out on me, I'm going to cut it. But uh, it hasn't yet. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm enjoying it. And, um, you know, it's kind of who I am. 
indirectly and you know i i have uh i have some ties in native american culture as well and um and there's a there's a there's a belief if you have longer hair that you're more sensitive to things around you like a hunter uh and culturally that is believed in the native american culture with the length of your hair allows you to be in tune with nature more you, you know they, they were better trackers they were better hunters and you know some some cultures believed that uh and you know i, I was raised roman catholic so I read Samson in, in the in the Bible, and when he had long hair, he was, you know, doing his thing, and I don't know. So maybe maybe part of it goes to one or the other, but uh, or did I just like it? I don't know. My wife doesn't give me any crap about it, so for now, I'm keeping yeah, it. <laughs> uh, that's the ultimate litmus right there. Exactly. And she says, uh, you know, I, I told everybody to, I, I'm going to grow it for a while, I'm going to enjoy it while I have it, and then I'm going to donate it to some, you know, a children's leukemia or something like that where they make wigs. And because my hair is white, you know, you can buy it any color you want. So uh, that's what I'm going to do with it when I'm done nice. with it. But for now, yeah, you know, why not, right? I did that for several years, so I mine's not white, so different ballgame. <laughs> Since we've now broached that subject, um, I, I have to ask, how, how do you deal with the hair when you're working with fire and molten metal? So now we got to get into that subject. Well, you know, I might have singed it yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, for the most part, um, and you know, for the camera and such, I'm, I'm, I'm building a YouTube channel around the blacksmithing, a little different than my, my personal YouTube channel, which has some of my old martial arts stuff on it. But, uh, uh, so some of the pictures I'll take for that. You know, I'll, I'll work it a little bit as, as, you know, trying to fit the persona of what you might think a blacksmith or a blacksmith is, and if you watch Game of Thrones, you know, I want to look like the blacksmith in that or the one in Vikings or something. Uh, so, you know, for, for a picture, I might take it down. Uh, when I'm actually out there working with the hot steel for hours and hours and hours, it's definitely back in a ponytail or up in a hat or something. Um, so it's not in the way. And, and the other thing I'm dealing with, too, is grinders and such. So certainly wouldn't want to get caught in that. But... Um, you know, I have singed my hair. I have singed my beard. I keep my beard a little shorter than I used to for that reason. Um, when you're doing any type of forge welding, you know, you're hitting temperatures out of that forge about 2,500 degrees. So when that steel comes out, uh, you better be prepared for it. And, um, you know, one of the things I started doing years ago was uh, grip strength training. It had to do with another one of Mr. Herman's students, in fact. And we were working the technique. I think it was parting wings. And after he did the initial movement and he grabbed my pectoral, I thought he was going to rip my flesh off my body. I mean, he squeezed it so hard. It, it, I, it, it hurt in ways that uh, I did not expect. And he's a little older than I am. And I remember asking afterwards, like, dude, what do you do for your grip strength? Because that was crazy. Uh, and he gave me some pointers and stuff that I started working from that time forward. And I, and no lie, I mean, I had, it was like a Kung Fu movie. I had fingerprint uh, bruises, you know, where he had grabbed my pectoral for like, you know, several weeks. I mean, it looked like, you know, five fingers of death right on where he had grabbed me. I mean, it was crazy. 
So I, I kept up the grip strength training. Um, I've got a little bit of stuff on that on my, my personal YouTube channel where I'm closing a, what they call heavy grip 250. So it's 250 pounds of pressure to close it. Whereas your standard one from the store is probably 30 pounds to close it. So uh, I started doing those and I, I, that applies over to my bladesmithing, blacksmithing, because when I'm holding the tongue and the piece of steel on the other side is over 2,000 degrees, I certainly don't want to drop it. Yeah. And I certainly want to know where the steel is the entire time I'm doing what I'm doing. So I'm swinging a three-pound hammer with the other hand, uh, and I'm holding this very, very hot steel um, through the tongs on another one. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you talk about building up grip strength and, you know, I joke around. I have very large hands anyway, but I, I joke around how after doing this for four years, you know, you don't want me to hit you with thundering handles or anything because it's a different experience now <laughs> with all this, this uh, bracemithing and stuff I've done. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, again, I'm going to go back to a Mr. Keller event where Mike Pick was teaching, Grandmaster Mike Pick. He asked me to come up to Uki form, and um, he was doing tripping arrow at the time, and he hit me with the, tech, the technique, and I mean, I remember feeling it, like it shot an electrical wave through my body that shot into the floor through my feet, and I remember feeling like, I mean, he didn't even hit me very hard, it was just, he was demonstrating something, and uh, he's a well-known blacksmith also, like he's, he's done some incredible work uh, in regard to that, a lot of people don't. I'd say a fair amount of people probably do know from the journey that, that he is a blacksmith. Um, but uh, I, I didn't have an appreciation for how much that adds to your power, you know, doing some some art like that. Because blacksmithing, bladesmithing is, is another art. And, you know, it's a martial art as well. So let's back up just a little bit. Well, uh, four years or so. How did you get started into bla the blacksmithing and uh, sidebar bladesmithing? So um, what happened was my my I, I was remarried uh, around that time, and my my wife is very crafty. She's fantastic artist and in all mediums, leatherworking, jewelry, glass, you know, just even drawing. Uh, she's fantastic. Anyway, her parents have been going to this place called the Johnson Campbell Folk School for like thirty years. And um, she had not had an opportunity to go. It just didn't pan out for her. And her uh, late husband, that wasn't really something that he was interested in doing. And it was something that I was interested in. And they ended up having um, a class. And they offer all kinds of classes. But they had a class on making a longbow, a traditional longbow. And it was for beginners. And I said, hey, you know what? That sounds really cool. I'm going to go learn how to make a longbow. So we, we go to the school. I take this class. I thoroughly enjoy the class. And every day you meet for communal meals. And you've got your name tag on. That's your uh, admission to get your meal. And it tells your first name, where you're from, and what class you're taking. And I encourage you to sit with different people every day just so you get to know different people that are up there doing different things. So uh, I happen to be at, a uh, at lunch with a guy named Dave Custer, who's a very well-known blacksmith, especially at this point in time. At the time, he was the assistant instructor in the class. And he asked me uh, how I liked the longbow class, and I was telling him how much I enjoyed it. And he asked me if I would bring him some bowstring down to the forge. 
And I said, that sounds pretty cool, because I, wanted, I was kind of wanting to see the forge anyway. So I, I walked a quarter mile or whatever it was down to the forge, and I brought him some bowstring. And out of appreciation, he uh, took two pieces of like 316th round stock, and I watched him hand forge two arrowheads for me out of this round bar of steel, and it just blew my mind. I, I couldn't. I couldn't fathom it. It just was the skill that he demonstrated and the, you know, however he wanted the metal to go, it just went in that way. Uh, you know, with the same mastery we see in the martial arts when we see something executed well. I mean, it's the, it's the same thing. And uh, I said, man, I got to try this. This is something that I've got to do. So we, we go up every year. And so sometimes twice a year, and the next time we went up to the school, uh, I ended up taking blacksmithing. And then we've been back six times or so, five or six times, and I've taken blacksmithing every time. And I've been very lucky to have some phenomenal blacksmithing instructors, uh, Matt Jenkins, John Scry, and um, David and Caleb Burris. Uh, just these guys are great at what they do. And I went up for Scottish, Scottish Heritage Week, and we were making traditional Scottish knives, uh, the regular dirk and one called a skin do, which is your concealed carry circa, you know, 16-something. And um, I just I just loved it. I just fell in love with it. And, of course, you know, the TV shows like Forged and Fire were on at the time. And uh, that that I was drawn to it from that as well because it just kind of, it was something really cool to be able to see this, uh, you know, this this ancient art, so to speak, come back to life. And I remember my first uh, blacksmith instructor asked me, you know, and I was brand new. I had never swung a hammer in this regard before. And he said, well, what do you want to do? Like, what's your goal with blacksmithing? And I said, I want to recreate ancient martial arts weaponry. And, uh, you know, and then uh, everyone kind of laughed. And then the guy sitting next to me, when he said to him, he goes, well, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to do what he said. <laughs> so, uh, and I go, yeah, and his name is Jerry Smith, and I'm still friends with him today as well. But, uh, yeah, that's what kind of got me started. And, you know, I, I did a lot of research. I came home. I, I spent time on the forums looking at forges, looking at anvils, looking at hammers, looking at... What do you need to get started? What, um, even though I have some basics at this point. And uh, I ended up selling my Harley because it just wasn't fun anymore for me. And I invested the money from that into the uh, my initial setup. And I've been going strong ever since. So uh, I'm checking out your Panda Bear Forge YouTube channel, which uh, you search Panda Bear Forge on YouTube for anybody who wants to take a look at it. And I'm, I'm just looking at some of these videos while, you know, doing my research here and uh, while we've been uh, back and forth, just chatting back here. That looks like you're doing this out of your garage and you got 2,500 degree steel and out running through a garage here? Uh, anyone? No. Um, everyone else? Yeah. So <laughs> 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 it's, it's, uh, you, yes. It's a, my house is an old house built in the 70s. I've got a 30 by 30 by 30 space. Um, believe it or not, even though it's 2,500 in the forge, and some, sometimes potentially higher than that, 
it's the heat is relatively well contained as far as the that temperature to the forge um and i you know i keep the doors cracked and such uh, but it does get, you know, even in this time where it might be 20 degrees outside, uh, I turn that forge on, especially if I'm doing any forge welding, where you have to turn it up really high. Um, I mean, it's 80 degrees in there in 15 minutes. So it's 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 pretty crazy. It's pretty hot. And, of course, I wear the proper PPE. I have a fire extinguisher. I have all that stuff nearby. I've got emergency cutoff valves and stuff like that. So uh, I, I, I take my safety pretty seriously. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, how do you deal with ventilation for stuff like that? Like, doesn't that forge have well, to be vented somewhere? I do. No, no. It's a propane forge. It's not coal. Um, coal would be vented. And I have a lot of training. The folks who are all coal forges, but I can't do that where I live. So uh, it, part of the benefits of having a house built in 1975 is not exactly sealed all the way, especially in the garage. And um, I have two large double garage doors, and I'll open them about three feet each one. Uh, so it's it's more than enough ventilation to just kind of keep everything going. Got it. Sorry, just curiosity question hit me there. I was like, man, that's got to be really hot. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to touch it. There's, you know, it's funny too because when you use a, a compound called flux to help a forge weld take place, when the steel becomes basically molten or not molten but malleable like a clay uh that borax which is what we use most people use borax as the fluxing agent um it, it's molten on the the shelf of the forge so you have to have a sacrificial shelf that you use for that because it, it's it is molten at that point i mean and, and i've i have a video somewhere where i show it for a second or two uh, and you can see kind of the glow of everything else. And then when you look at that little puddle in the middle, that's molten glass, basically. And um, it stays that way for a while. And it will eventually burn through that the, that shelf that you have to have. That's why I say you have to have a sacrificial one. So uh, we'll use only for that type of stuff. Okay. So I know there are some projects we cannot discuss, uh, respectfully speaking. But what are some of the most fun projects you've had so far from the, the blacksmithing side of your career? Um, I, I believe I get a lot of commission work. A lot of people are interested in it, and they they um, enjoy the fact that I'm a martial artist. In, in addition to uh, doing the blacksmithing, I feel like the, my my martial arts training and background has kind of helped me to. Be more efficient, you know. I don't miss very many hammer strikes, and they're really gonna go where I want them to. Uh, so I, I've, I've made, recently made a Damascus blade, which is the first time I've ever made a Damascus steel knife. Um, and I have the process on my YouTube channel. I kind of a high level overview. It's only a 13 minute video, and I've probably got six hours invested in actually making the blade to the point um, it's at now. So uh, that was a challenge for me. That was something that I've heard a lot of bad things about where it, it can go awry very quickly. And I was very fortunate that my first attempt throughout the gate, um, it was successful. So I was pretty pleased with that. Uh, and, and in the temple world, uh, you know, I'm getting known for bladesmithing as well. Um, I'm certainly no Gil Hibben or anything, but, you know, maybe one day I'll... I'll be the gill heaven of, of the camp of um, when, when he's in longer with us. Um, I, I don't stand a candle to him. He's fantastic. But anyway, uh, I am the official bladesmith 
for AIK uh, American Temples Night School in um, Arizona, and they have a very unique blade that one of their students designed, who's a black belt, who's a Vietnam veteran, uh, combat paratrooper, I believe. He, he came up with a design, and they asked me if I would give it a shot at trying to hand forge him, and um, they liked the product I sent him, and so basically, I'm the, uh, the official maker of that blade, even though I did not come up with the design. Um, I am the bladesmith for the design, and it's you know, it's very challenging, nice to make. There's a lot of curves on it, and doing that on the horn on an anvil can be challenging. And there's holes in places you wouldn't expect them to be necessarily, and uh, quad ground, and you know it's all properly heat treated and, and such. And they, you know, after a lot of time invested in each one, um, but it, you know it's a handmade item, and you know they, I'm very fortunate to have a really good relationship with them uh, in, in regards to this plus and in, in temple in general. So that's kind of one of my, my newer projects with the blacksmithing bladesmithing that I've been doing. Um, I don't do a lot of traditional blacksmithing anymore, but I have done things like I've made, uh, I make you know, the basic stuff, hooks and things of that nature. Um, and I did make the, I blacksmithed, or I forged rather, the, uh, all the hooks for the 10th degree elevation ceremony um, that they had a few years ago with Mr. LeBounty was there, Mr. Red Lake, Mr. Sepulveda. Uh, Mr. White and Mr. Duffy, I think, went to ninth degree that day. So they they had an event and they had um, these very very awesome stands made for their belts. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to forge the hooks for those. So I made these really nice thick hooks that they could utilize to basically hang their last belt on. And I thought that was awesome. So, um, you know, I even I talked to Mr. Redlake not too long ago, and he said to me that he sees it every day in his office, and I get a sense of pride from that. I mean, that's, that's really cool to have a guy like that, you know, appreciate something that I made, um, you know, via the Knights, of course, commissioning me for me, from me rather. And, um, yeah, I got a lot of pride from that, and it's it was great to meet all those guys. I've, I've known Mr. Redlake prior, uh, but some of, the, some of them I met that first time, at that 10th degree elevation ceremony. Uh, it was great to meet, um, you know, Mr. Labani, you know, as you know, he's passed on at this point. Uh, so I was I'm very fortunate enough to have had some conversations with him one-on-one, um, you know, at the, in the hotel hangout area that we did and at the school and such. And I got to see all the promotion ceremony and stuff. It was a really, really cool, great event and great people. Shout out to the Knights down there in Tucson, Arizona, USA. Absolutely. So official knife maker for AIK, a bunch of commissioned work. So do you take much commissioned work that is outside of blades at this point then? No, no. Uh, And I I really prefer if someone would just say, make whatever you want and, and let me see it. And I'd rather, you know, maybe get a knife like that. I mean, I, I don't mind making a kitchen knife for someone or making a particular style, but I, I do like it if someone says, hey, I want a knife this long and I want the handle this long, and then I can kind of have my own creativity and freedom to make a style. 
um, as opposed to being fixed to a style. You know, I mean, they, this comes back to the martial arts. This comes back to spontaneity and flow. You know, I've I like spontaneity and flow. Um, I don't like to necessarily do something in this particular order. You know, I mean, I will, and I can do it well, but I would rather have some freedom to kind of make what I want to make. And I think that, and, and regardless, I always put a hundred percent of my effort into the braids I make. And when I when I make a braid for the night, the nights, for example, and I know this is a little hokey. But I, I, I makers mark all my blades. I stamp them with the panda stamp that my wife designed. Um, and I, and when I make it, when I stamp it, I key I loud. And it's something I feel like, uh, you know, they say the birth of the blade is in the quench. Well, part of the birth of the blade for me is putting some of my, my spirit energy into it. And I do that. I do key I every time uh, that I strike it. And, I, and no one knows that. I mean, no one's here to see that. No one, you know, I don't say that to people before I give them the knife, but I do. And it's, it's part of, to me, I think um, it's important. It's something that's special to me that allows me to then send this piece into the world, which will be around, you know, far longer than I'm, you know, in this existence. You know, I, the idea that my knives will be out there, you know, a hundred or more years from now, uh, there will be some of them out there. That's just so cool to me. And then, you know, I'm thinking about making one and burying it in my backyard. So, <laughs> you know, someone can find it in the future. Nice. I, I have to come yeah. up with some way to seal it so it doesn't get all rusted or anything. Well, the rust is okay, but the, uh, the, the handle will be gone, you know, over time. Because they, they found Viking Age swords and stuff that are still intact. Obviously, the, the handles are gone, but the uh, the tangs and the swords and stuff are still, you know, they're, they're decayed a bit, but you can still tell what it is, though. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, we talked earlier about the parallels and the positives, negatives between the martial arts that you've studied, you know, cross-lineage-wise. Do you feel like we're, we're working through the blacksmithing slash swordsmithing is directly affecting what you're doing martial arts wise like i know you've gained so much strength especially you know forearms arms hands all that kind of stuff have you gained so much strength there that it directly affects a lot more of what you do besides you know thundering hammers oh yeah absolutely and as you know you know you're also a chemical practitioner uh the the power principles that we utilize and just proper alignment uh allow us to generate power even if you know, the smaller stature people can do it, um, which is a, one of the great things that Mr. Parker, you know, gave to us, the, these tools to become better. Uh, but I absolutely feel like regardless of what I do motion-wise, uh, it's enhanced. And, you know, not just that. I mean, it's, imagine a thousand repetitions of a particular motion. Uh, you, you, it's going to show somehow in, in things that you do. And one of the things Mr. Pick told me, and he mentioned it also in the journey, uh, is that he stands in a neutral bow when he blacksmiths. So I do that also. And sometimes, depending on what I'm doing, I'll switch dance, but I'll, I'll predominantly stay uh, in a neutral bow when I'm, when I'm executing that. So I am training in that regard uh, in, some, in some fashion. Um, but absolutely, yeah, it's, I, I see the relationship. Um, I remember 
we had an event and Bill Parsons put on an event, Tempo in the Carolinas. I think it was the second one uh, where I had been asked to teach a segment. And with Mr. Redleg's permission, I taught a segment that he came up with called Protecting the Third Person, which I also taught at the IKCA 10th annual event in Seal Beach. Uh, when I, Mr. LaRue and Mr. Sullivan invited me out to do that. And I came there with Mr. Herman, which was a really fantastic experience. But I remember prior to it, seeing some of the other instructions that were going on, you know, like Robert Temple's class and all these things were really great, you know, Mr. Parsons' class and all that. And they had a bob there, and I was doing, I think it was five swords, just the beginning of five swords on it. And I was just focused on alignment. I didn't, I wasn't trying to hit it hard, I was just trying to hit it correctly. And a student came up to me, uh, not my student, but someone's student that was there, and they said, I've never seen anyone hit that that hard in my life. And I said, well, I wasn't hitting it hard, I was hitting it correctly. And there's a difference between the two. Right, but if you, if, I, if you try to hit it hard, you might not. But if you try to hit it correctly, and your alignments are right, and your power principles are correct, and your timing is where it needs to be, then it all relates to power anyway. So, you know, that was kind of eye-opening, I think, for that student and for me, both. Because I, I, I remember thinking, all right, I'm just trying to hit these angles, uh, and not hard. Uh, you know, that was not the focus. So that was a kind of a cool moment for me there. Okay. So we got quite a few parallels. I mean, just body mechanics wise and, you know, hand strength wise, all that good stuff. It really plays into it. And it, it's kind of cool. You found another career uh, that does the same kind of thing for you. I hear a lot of the same stuff from musicians, especially the ones that play like stringed instruments or hammer based instruments, just from wielding the tools so much. It really just increases dexterity and strength and flexibility, all that good stuff. So that's kind of cool that it crosses over there too. So yeah. you mentioned uh, you're, you've taught at several seminars, and I, I'm just curious. What do you think your favorite seminar you ever got to teach was? Oh, that's a good question. Man, that's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, I could go, you know, I, I taught a Hapchito seminar up in Ohio years ago, and uh one of the cool things with that is I was on the same bill as um, Gary Dill, who is a Jeet Kune Do guy, original Jeet Kune Do guy from James Lee and Bruce Lee. And that was kind of cool. I got to meet him. And he was, he's an interesting guy, very skilled. Uh, the cool thing about that seminar is we had participants from, the, from three different states coming in. Uh, and we had, I had about 50 people there. So it was, it was, that was my, as far as turnout goes for me, my segment, that was quite a lot of people. Um, and introducing some type of hand techniques to these people that had basically very little or limited up to that point. Um, I remember getting a lot of aha moments. But I really did also enjoy teaching. Uh, I mean, the Camp in the Carolinas events were great. And I, I remember a lot of aha moments from that as well from some of the students. And I remember we were doing um, circling destruction or something like that. We were showing an advanced technique. And one of the guys who was a local karate practitioner from that school was not a Kempo guy. And I, again, I don't remember the exact style, but it was a Japanese system. 
he's having difficulty with it. And I remember saying to him, like, well, you know, this is cool and all that. And, you know, we follow this motion, and there's a lot of reasons behind it that we're not going to get into here because it's a basic seminar. Jimmy's having some fun right now. I remember showing him like a like a block um, on a technical darting mace, and then instead of going up for a punch, I just kind of I kind of blocked the you know inner block on the outside of his arm, and I just kind of used the um, rebounding motion to then kind of put my finger towards his eye, not hitting him, of course, but saying like, "Well, really, if you're in this situation, you need to do this." And he's like, "I mean," he said it just blew his mind. He said, "He said I never thought of that. It was just something so simple." Instead of being stuck in, I have to do X, Y, Z. That's where that formulation comes in. That available target's available weapon. And I think for him, he, he had, even though he's a black belt and has respect his system, I don't think they really practice that. So to have him uh, give me feedback and say, you know, that that blew his mind and, you know, how much he appreciated it, uh, that was a super cool moment for me just to kind of help expand another martial artist's mind with Kempo, who is not a Kempo practitioner. So I thought that was kind of cool. I would, I would have to agree. That sounds like a heck of a lot of fun and a big light bulb moment you got to witness. Yeah, yep. I was, uh, you know, we touched on it earlier about just be the, the challenges of training cross-lineage and especially, you know, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, American and then, you know, the differences in training philosophies between them all, not even coming close to touching the material-wise. Um, when I was first starting out, I was very, very blessed that my teacher taught me all of our, you know, it was a Japanese, uh, Japanese-Chinese hybrid system, but we had Japanese forms for the most part. Uh, they were just more circular than they were linear. Was, you know, you take basic, you know, Pinon series of katas, but all of ours were done with much more circular intent and grappling applications of them than they were with linear movements just as a you know, short example there. Um, but he made yeah. me fall in love with the idea of bunkai, which for those of us who are you know, not familiar with that term, it means taking a kata, which is a prearranged, you know, form set that looks like, you know, you're dancing around the floor, doing blocks, punch kicks and whatnot. The bunkai is looking at those individual movements or sequences of movements and figuring out what are those applications? What's the self-defense that's in there? Stuff like that. So one of my favorite things to do is when I get an opportunity to teach in any of those seminars that have multiple styles, or you have like the traditional Korean stylist, or the traditional Japanese stylist, that they've really been those those uh, straight down that path, and then you start talking bunkai applications, or what we would look at in Kepo is just deconstructing movement, right? But then we start exploring what can we do with this movement, and the the look on their faces is just like you're you're it's the dawn of the sunrise, like holy cow, there's so much more we can do with this one movement. And that, that stuff always yeah. lights me up. That's it's awesome. And it's to experience it as a teacher and as a student. It's phenomenal. You know, I, I remember uh, you made it just put another memory for me where uh, I had met Lee Epperson for the first time in person. And we had talked on the boards up to this point. And we were discussing a Korean forum. And believe it or not, Lee Epperson was one of those guys who was a Taekwondo guy first. And a phenomenal campus and phenomenal with his own system as well, through grappling and such. And we were talking about um, a high-level Taekwondo black belt form. And he showed me a, a hidden wrist lock in the form that I didn't know was there. And, I, and it blew my mind. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, here I am at a campus seminar talking to 
a guy that used to be a Taekwondo guy, like I was, and, and uh, is a campus and, and more, and because of his jiu-jitsu background and training, he had discovered something, or maybe he was initially taught it or I wasn't. And he, again, opened that door for me to go to just say, wow, man, there's, it's, this is why the martial arts is so cool. There's so many of these things, these vast things inside every style uh, that I, I hope doesn't get lost. You know, this is why it's so important today to have knowledgeable practitioners and teachers that continue to pass this stuff on. <clears throat> you know, like my, my friend Alexander Perez in Florida. Phenomenal campus. Excellent. I mean, he knows it and he can do it. But this is going to be one of those guys that brings it to the future, you know, when I'm not here anymore. And he's passing that on to people where they're going to have this knowledge that will not be lost. And that's so important in any style, but especially in Kempo, because I love it. Yeah, it's that whole, you mentioned it earlier too, with you know the guys from the 50s and the 60s look at you and say, well, you know, we, we trained harder, right? And then your era looks at my era, which I'm, you know, 15 years, well, actually, I take that back. You started in 75, I started in December of 98. Um, yeah, I, interestingly enough, I claimed December 15th, 1998 as my starting date, not realizing later on when I got into Kempo what a significant date that is for Kempo practitioners. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, you know, the, the, when even when I got in there, it's like the, the generations who came after me in some regards in some places are significantly um, less exposed to all of that plethora of information that I got. And it, it's just, yeah. you know, it's up to us now that we need to go back and catch that up and really pass that forward so we can keep these arts going the way, not necessarily for, we have to traditionalize out of them, but we need to keep the knowledge going. And we got to keep that flow going and we got to keep that, that spirit of let's preserve information. You know, the methods may change the, you know, the legalities of modern society may dictate that we can't do all the same things that they did in the sixties anymore, but that doesn't mean we have to lose the knowledge. It just means we have to provide a different context for it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and as, as you said, I mean, it's so important. And I, I think about sometimes, what has been lost to us already? I mean, in, in the martial arts for sure, but I mean, things in, in the, if we just even talk about life in general, I mean, there was a time when probably my grandmother's generation could go out into an herb garden and find things that would help you to cure something that we now either don't know how to do it at an individual level, or we rely on some type of modern medicine with it. You know, I'll piggyback on that with uh, my mother-in-law. I burned myself by, you know, I was being stupid and the tongs, these tongs hold hot steel and I put them back in the rack. Didn't think I'd need them again. They were gray, which is what color they always are. Well, they were still probably about 600 degrees when I grabbed them by the top end. Holy crap. So I burned my hand. Yeah, yeah. It was instantaneous blistering and... Uh, it hurt. <laughs> and I'm, I got a pretty high pain to heart. And I remember, I mean, throbbing to the point that I'm, I'm on the borderline of like, do I go to the ER for this? Well, my mother-in-law uh, was an ER nurse for many, many years. And my wife called her and said, hey, this, Martin did this. What can, is there anything we can do? Should we go, you know, this is what it looks like. Should he go to the hospital? She goes, no, 
go get some baking soda and mix it with some water until it's a paste and then put that on it. And I'm like, that's it? And she says, yeah. I said, when do I take it off? She goes, it would fall off by itself. And I said, all right. So why not try it, right? So we, we try it. We put this paste on. It cools it almost instantly. And then, then it starts to hurt a little bit again. And then I get me that initial pain of that, and then it subsides. And about two hours later, it falls off, and the blister that I had on about three different fingers was almost flat to my skin. Like something had happened with the properties that it completely absorbed it and made it, and it basically healed me with some dime store stuff we had at the house instead of a $2,000 ER visit. And, and, you know, that's just one example of something that I didn't know, and I'm in my 50s, and, you know, I know it's not martial arts related, but, hey, what have we lost in the martial arts? Or what did some master not pass on to somebody that's been lost. You know, and I, I hate to think of that. And I think one of the beauties, uh, things that Mr. Parker gave us and the ability to look at motion and to analyze and study motion and look for, you know, things to fit in between and such based on his studies and what he passed on. And, and the people have been passed on to us. Um, we have the ability to maybe rediscover some things, whereas I think some styles are not taught to think about motion that way, and they, and they end up losing it, and and something and some very valuable things probably end up getting lost in the mix that I way. I completely agree. I think any camp, any, yeah, and and any Kempo practitioner you talk to, that's a derivative of American Kempo, it, it understands how to think about motion, and they understand how to think about logic, understanding the system as it was intended to be taught, taking that apart as like you said, looking at different examples of how you can perform or do something, and then maybe putting it back together in a sequence that speaks to you or is best for your body style, aka tailoring, right? your mindset, your knowledge, your body, that type of stuff. And, and I think that in Kempo, if, if there were some things that were lost when Mr. Parker passed, uh, you know, many people that he trained and then people that they have trained have the ability to potentially rediscover things that were lost. Not that I'm saying that they were lost, but I think the way he taught his students how to think uh, allows us the luxury and the ability to be able to do that. And I, I have found that very valuable, even studying uh, a different system. So I did study with a local Wing Chun guy before I had met Randy Williams. And there, there's many, many things I could see, uh, you know, just by my knowledge of understanding the body and understanding motion and the ability of what we can do with, with what we had at that particular moment. I completely agree. You know, just the training through the Kempo and the way that logical breakdown is constructed changed the way I interpreted everything else that I'm doing. It's like exactly. you can run, you know, go back to your Shotokan days and run one of the basic katas through that logic filter and, oh, there's a whole bunch of different applications here. But then you say the same thing, you know, yeah. if you're a jujitsu guy, you can take your jujitsu knowledge and go look at a kata and say, Oh, here's a whole different set of applications for it. Right. 
Now, the process of getting exactly. there is going to be a little different because, you know, jiu-jitsu looks at things differently than Kempo does. And Aikido looks at things differently than both of those do, et cetera, et cetera. But that cross-lineage experience to be able to filter motion through your existing knowledge base, I, to me, it's invaluable. And the more, as you said earlier, the more tools you can put in your toolbox that are valid tools, the better off you're going to be towards being able to look at that, extrapolate, and understand. 100%. And, and as you said, the application follows over or flows over into regular life. I, I had a student who was uh, a mechanic. And he was, he, and I, you know, in, in the martial arts, and you know this in particularly in Kempo, you know, we talk about anchoring elbows and we talk about the physics and the logic behind how things work. Um, he, he came back to me and told me that at work, he had to move something very heavy. And he said, as soon as he anchored his elbows, which he remembered from a lesson I taught him about proper alignment, that it was 10 times easier to move this object than it was the way he was trying to do it prior to that. And so here's a Kempo lesson that he took into his everyday life, was able to apply a principle and concept and make his life easier. And, and again, that light bulb aha moment, like, man, this stuff really works. I'm, I'm chuckling in the background. I had to mute myself so I didn't interrupt you, but it's, you know, what's that, uh, that's that saying. There's several <laughs> variations of it running around there. It's like, you know, teacher, I've, I've done this thing a hundred times and I don't feel like it's getting any easier. And the teacher looks at him and goes, maybe try doing it five times the way I asked you to do it so you can learn the lesson. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, too, I've had a lot of people talk to me about, you know, people that, and, and you know, I, I, when I, I do speak about the martial arts a lot. I mean, it's something that's been a part of my life for the majority of my life. And so it's something that I'm passionate about and I, I love to talk about it and I'd love this opportunity to speak to you about it today. Uh, but when people, people ask me questions because they see stuff in the movies and they see, they want to know the secrets or they want to know these different things. I do love Mr. Chuck Sullivan's story about the secrets too, but I, I won't share that now. They can look that up later if they want Season to. Season one podcast. So there's a plug for, there you go. I figured it would be, uh, and then I just walked I'll give everybody the short <laughs> Chuck Sullivan had a, a told a uh, uh, the story about the secrets and everybody kept asking Mr. Parker about the secrets what are the secrets come on give, it, give us the secrets so finally one night he decides uh, he just announces tonight I'm going to teach you the secrets and he walks over to the front door and locks the door and he put them through the hardest basics class that he had ever taught them and it was nothing but the basics for the next two hours and the lesson on there was Everything comes from the basics and it doesn't matter how fancy your applications want to get. If your basics suck, you'll never get to those applications. You've got to have the solid basics that allow you to do those other movements that come and built on those later. Exactly. And, and his perfect practice makes perfect statement is great too. I love that. I, I use that in my day job and uh, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's absolutely true. And the basics, statement goes back to no matter what you do in life. If you're a person that enjoys shooting at the range, well, you better have good basics. I mean, and that's what you fall back on when you're in a pressure situation is your basics. So I fully agree with that. And uh, man, I, I work them hard as I can. Uh, but if you, uh, what I was going to say is uh, I had someone ask me about you know the, the mysteries of chi 
with the mysteries of, you know, channeling this unseen force. And, you know, I was trained. I can break boards and bricks just like a lot of the old school karate guys can do. And I was taught how to do it right. And in my experience, yes, I mean, there's been times where with the breath and the breathing that I do, you know, you feel like you're entering a different state. But I don't know. I feel like um, it's physics and science. And that's really how you do all of this stuff. I'm not hitting you with a chi strike. I'm hitting you with a proper aligned weapon. And when I do that and I pull energy from the earth by my stance being correct and my alignments being correct, I feel like that's really kind of where this, all this happens from. Um, Randy Williams taught me the three-inch punch, the Bruce Lee three-inch punch. And uh, I worked it quite a bit uh, when I came back to uh to here years ago and you know i used to use that to kind of demonstrate that whole concept now i also put tempo in it so it was not only what he showed me but also some of the things that i knew just about tempo that i added to to it almost increase the effect for me personally i'm not saying you can't do without that you know, I'm just saying for me, because my filter is my filter. And the stuff that I have learned up until this point, if you and I both have to teach the same subject to someone, it will be different in some ways because our filters are different. And we can't help it. Yep. And that's just how it's going to be. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've had some some success with that. You know, I had, had a guy, six foot four, two seventy five used to play for the Kansas City Chiefs. And he was a big martial arts fan. The guy's name's Drew. He played uh, special teams one season, I think. But good guy. Young guy. A lot younger than me. Half my age. Love the martial arts. He wanted to experience the three-inch punch. And I said, okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big guy like that. Let's see, it. Let's see what we can do. I said, go grab a, a phone book. So I think we found like a ream of paper or something. We didn't have a phone book handy because it's probably difficult to find one anyway. So I, I lined up. I had all my alignments correct. I touched it, you know, the phone book with my fingertips. I said, are you ready? And he was starting to say, yes, I, I just struck. Because in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike anyway. I don't care if you say no. I'm already going to be hitting <laughs> at that moment. So uh, I, I ended up doing that. And, I mean, I sent him back pretty far with it and again it's you know with the alignments right and the concepts and everything uh that i learned not only from any ways but from tempo application to to uh enhance it for me personally um i was very pleased with the result and his eyes lit up like pie plates i mean huge like oh my god because he didn't had no idea that that was going to happen to him and um a, a little while later someone had asked him uh, hey, you know, I heard that Martin showed you that three-inch punch. You know, did he, did he knock you back? And he goes, well, yeah. He goes, well, how far did he knock you back? He goes, further than I wanted him to. So, I, you know, I, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I've got a contradicting story for that, which was kind of neat, you know, and a little bit eye-opening to me. Uh, so I'm going down to Alex Perez's school, and I'm teaching that trapping seminar I was talking about. 
and a guy named uh, Dan Puebla was there, really cool chemist from South Florida. And uh, I was, you know, he volunteered for me to demonstrate the three-inch punch on him. So I'm like, all right, well, let's just go get a pad. Let's get a karate pad from over here. So I line up, and he's a good guy. He's a chemist. I know he can take the hit. I'm going to hit him pretty hard in my mind is what I'm thinking. So I line up, I touch the pad, and I hit the pad. Now, this is one of those sensory pads that has a lot of, like, this air buildup in it. And I wasn't aware of that. So when I hit it, like, 90% of the strike got dissipated by this air pocket in the pad. And, I, and so I, I knocked him back a little bit, but nowhere near in my mind what was going to happen. <laughs> so it was kind of like a fall flat on your face, uh, you know, like, well, that, that, you need to do that demo again. <laughs> Let's find something else to... Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a little bit humbling. Um, I mean, Dan might have a different story. He might say, yeah, it actually did hurt. But, uh, man, that, when I felt the pad just collapse with this air pocket, and you could hear it. It just, this exhale of air violently coming out of all sides of this thing where, you know, just absorbing 90% of the strike, uh, you know, in my mind, is like, well, all right <laughs> let's move on to something else <laughs> yeah good times it's just i love sharing stories on this podcast and just get to hear you know different experiences that everybody has because it's all about growth and it's all about how do you personally take information out of what you're learning and how do you apply it in other context and that's i just love doing this show i really do that's awesome yeah i've enjoyed sharing stories with you today so, Martin, you know, we've been buddies since way back in the, I, I can't even remember if it was Kempo Talk or Marshall Talk or Kempo Net, you know, somewhere on those online interwebs that we met there. Uh, we finally actually got to meet in, you know, at the IKCA seminar down at Long Beach, you know, got to be a decade ago by now, at least. Um, right. But, you know, I, I, I love doing the show. I love hearing, you know, the stories that are coming out of there. So I want to move into a little piece here towards the end. I want to give you the opportunity to go ahead and plug your stuff. That's what I call the segment here. Um, if people wanted to get a hold of you or if they wanted to, you know, commission a knife or anything of that nature, how would they get a hold of you? Where would they find you? So I'm, I'm pretty accessible on the web. Um, Instagram, I'm at Panda Bear Forge. And it's just like it's spelled P-A-N-D-A-B-E-A-R-F-O-R-G-E. Uh, also on YouTube. But if you're trying to get in touch with me, you could reach out to me uh, at pandabearforge at gmail.com. Uh, for a direct email message, if you wanted to hit me up on Instagram, uh, you can do that as well. I do have a Facebook page for Pain the Bear Forge um, in regards to the knife stuff. If you're a martial artist and you just want to connect or chat, uh, I do have a Martin Seck YouTube channel as well with some vintage footage on there and some other miscellaneous stuff and some of my thoughts. You can check that out uh, on my personal Facebook page, which is just my name, Martin Seck. Uh, all those are great ways to get in touch with me. Beautiful. All right. So my last question is the big softball, you know, and it's podcast is currently in 37 countries. We just got added on to two new platforms. So we're on Amazon audible and, uh, uh, Pandora just accepted our feed as well. So two more you know, areas for people to find our show. What message would you like all of our listening audience out there and anybody listening in the future to hear from Martin Seck? So, you know, in, in regards to, I mean, martial arts and life in general, I would say be humble. You know, be humble. Train for the reasons you train for. 
Um, you know, one of the Koshi's quotes I love is uh, about training to, to improve the perfection of character. You know, people train for different reasons. But, you know, be humble. Be humble and just train. Uh, put the time in. Put the effort in. Don't worry about belt rank. Don't worry about that type of stuff. Just put in the effort. Uh, when the teacher shows you something, go home and practice more. You know, just training a couple hours at school is not enough. you got to put the extra effort in your time. Those are the people that go far in the art, that continue those things. Uh, seek out questions. Ask people that have been there before you. You know, what did they learn? Have them share a story with you about someone you might respect in the art, regardless of the style. You're going to learn so much from that. But be humble, number one. You know, no matter no matter what. And that's, that goes with anything in life, but especially in the martial arts. Don't be afraid. Take your belt off. I don't care what belt it is. And start over to learn something new with an open mind. You don't have to stand up at the front of the class. You can stand at the back. doesn't matter. If you're learning, you're improving. But always remember to be humble. I love it. Man, thank you so much for agreeing to be in on the show. You know, I love what you've been putting out. I'm stoked you got to be here. Thanks so much for giving me your time. Hey, I appreciate it very much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Steve. I've known Martin for years and years at this point, but we've never crossed paths to chat for this long before. He does his thing, I do mine, but we're supportive of each other's efforts and the love of the martial arts that we both share. Custom blade work is always intriguing to me, and he's now receiving commissioned work on a regular basis. So if you're interested, hit him up sooner, as he might just get pretty darn booked up here soon. Great episode four for season two. Can't get into the details, but I'm hopeful we're going to see Martin back again if things work out for him like we think it will. You'll have to tune in again to hear about it if it does. Season 1 is still available at more major podcast platforms, with new platforms added again. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on whichever platform of choice floats your boat. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Audible, Pandora, and now on iHeartRadio as well. Find us at artistsofmotion.com. Facebook page is Artists of Motion. Twitter and Facebook at AOM Podcast. Email pod at artistsofmotion.com. If you're interested in appearing or you want to recommend us a guest, we're open to anyone of any style or lineage. That's about it for this week. I'm Steve Zalazowski Sr. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.